Hello, and welcome to this Solace Church podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We pray that God speaks to you today through this message. For more sermon content and information, visit solacechurch.com. Matthew 5, let's read together here, starting there in verse 3. Jesus says in his opening words to, to his sermon up on this mountain, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. All right, so this is the word of God. Let's pray together. Lord, thanks for your word this morning. We're excited for what... You're going to speak to us. We expect you to speak to us uh, through your word as we are able to hear and see God, even just from the very mouth of Jesus. It's your word coming through your son into our lives, God, not giving us a standard that we should measure up to to be accepted by you, but God, this is who you're making us to be. May we become these kinds of people that we read about here. As we learn about what you describe your kingdom to be like, may, Lord, you form us into that image. We give you the the space to to do that now. We open up our hearts and minds to you. I pray that you'd fill me with your Holy Spirit, God, that I might speak your word boldly and clearly for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, uh, today, as I said, as we we start the Sermon on the Mount, looking, we just read these, these little couplets of blessing here, and I've entitled my message this morning, The Blessed Ones, The Blessed Ones. You know, each of us, especially as Americans, we all have our own ideas of what it means to be blessed. Of, of, we, we have our own definitions of blessing. We have even our own framework of how you get it. We even have our own categories for who's blessed and who isn't. I want you to just think about your own life today uh, and and ask yourself this simple question, am I blessed? And if you are, I would ask you, how do you know? Like, what does it mean to be blessed according to whose standards? We, We have our own, just naturally, and as I said, especially as Americans, God bless America, we have our own ideas about blessing. Who gets it? Who deserves it? How it's achieved? What it looks like? And whatever that is for you, however you define it, Jesus here in Matthew 5 flips it on its head. And that's certainly what he was doing to those that were looking on. In in that culture, as Jesus is proclaiming his own ideas about blessing, those in who were sort of in that day, they were kind of the ones who were considered the blessed ones, the Pharisees, the the elite, 
the in crowd, those are the ones who had the favor of God and the blessing of God, they would look on at what Jesus is saying here in the Beatitudes, and they would look at these not as blessings, but they would look at these people as those who were cursed. This is completely flipping upside down what anyone thinks about blessing. The, the people that Jesus describes here as blessed. You know, Israel at that time had a very similar theology of blessing that I think many of us in America do today as well. Um, there's this idea that, we, that is, is, you know, there's a lot of these concepts and these phrases that we use um, about God that we've just always heard, but we've never actually seen that they're not in the Bible. And, and one of the most common, common ones, I don't know if you've heard this growing up, but it's this idea that God helps those who, what? Help themselves. You know, it says in the Bible that God helps those who help themselves. It's like, well, what, what chapter and verse? Because I, I, you know, that's, and that's actually how a lot of us think. In fact, in that culture, when it came to blessing, who would be blessed? Who gets the favor of God? Who, who, who gets the goodness of God? Who's happy in a satisfied life with God? Who, who gets that? Well, in that culture, it was the Pharisees. It was those who, the idea was the same thing. It's like, it, it's a group of people who um, have successfully helped themselves. And it's like God is seemingly impressed by them being able to get their lives together, and he sees, okay, I deem you worthy now of my blessing, because I help those who help themselves. And a lot of us think that way. A lot of us, even right now, we look at the Beatitudes, and this is how this is approached. A lot of times, the Beatitudes are approached as good advice for how to be blessed. Well, but, but if you actually look at the Beatitudes, and you look at it like a checklist, it's not going to work out. Like, good advice for being blessed. Okay, what do I got to do? I got to be persecuted. Okay, I, I want to be blessed. I got to get persecuted. I got to mourn. Okay, I'm going to cry later and mourn later. So, and that's, it's just our American mind. That's how we think. We tend to think when we come to the Bible, like checklist mentality, how can I do something to get something? How can I help, my, how can I help myself enough to where God can help me? And that is not what the Beatitudes are. That is not what, what God's blessing is. You see, it's the opposite. God doesn't help those who help themselves. What Jesus says here in the Beatitudes is that God helps those who cannot help themselves. The opposite. In fact, the context of this sermon, if you look just back a few verses in Matthew 4 at the end, I don't have it on the screen, but listen to this. It says, Jesus went about all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sicknesses and all kinds of diseases among the people. So Jesus comes to earth and he's preaching a gospel and he's doing ministry and the very nature of his ministry is I'm going to help and heal those who can't heal themselves. I'm going to go to the sick. And Jesus himself says, that's why I came. I didn't come for those who have got it all together. I didn't come for the healthy. I've come for the sick and I come, I've come to accomplish and proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, which is this, that the blessing of God comes to often the unexpected and mostly the undeserving. Not those who help themselves, but those who cannot help themselves. And that's what Jesus 
brings. He embodies it and he proclaims it here in the Beatitudes with eight blessings. These couplets of blessing for people that, again, in that culture were seen as cursed because they haven't done enough to earn themselves. But uh, we see Jesus kind of just totally flip that on its head. Uh, Let's look at each of these blessings. Remember, this is not good advice for how to be blessed. This is the good news. This is just good news of God's blessing coming to these kinds of people. This is the good news of the gospel for those that can't help themselves, for those that are in this situation. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's not saying here's a checklist for how to be blessed. He's saying here's the gospel of the kingdom. Here's the good news for the unexpected and often the undeserving. And he starts these blessings with the poor in spirit. As we see it there, the first verse says this. Uh, We already read it there, but it's blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So who's the first person, or the first category of people that Jesus says is blessed? He says it's the poor in spirit. The word poor there literally means destitute, like that of a beggar who has completely empty hands and is longing for even a crumb. It's, it's, it's poverty to the point of destitution, having nothing at all. He's, and it's not, a lot of people have taken this verse out of context and they say, well, Jesus said blessed are the poor, not the rich. And it's like, well, um, Jesus here is saying blessed are the poor in spirit. This has nothing to do with finances. This has to do with spirituality. This has to do with the, the nature of your heart. It has to do with being honest about who you are before God as having nothing in and of yourself to earn anything from him. What a great place for, the, for an idea about blessing to start. What a great place for the Sermon on the Mount to start. Uh, it's amazing when people go to the Sermon on the Mount and they, they jump past this verse, of course they make the Sermon on the Mount about what I can do. No, you have to start the Sermon on the Mount by going, I am poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those that don't have enough spiritual currency in and of themselves to accomplish what God has called them to do, to live the life that God has called them to live in and of themselves. There's this acknowledgement of that. Blessed are the poor in spirit, notice this, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So I want you to think about it this way. What Jesus says here is that those who know they have nothing to offer before God in and of themselves, those who know that they are destitute and poor, those who know that they have nothing are in fact heirs of everything. Isn't that amazing? Those who acknowledge they have nothing become heirs of everything. And uh, the point I'm making here is that the kingdom of God, uh, kingdom of heaven is everything. It's everything. Uh, Jesus said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world? but lose his own soul. There's no profit in gaining the world. This world is passing away. This is not a, investing in this world, it's like investing in Napster stock or something, okay? Investing in, you know, in MySpace or something, okay? All right? The kingdom of heaven is everything. It's what will last forever. It's it's the rule and reign of God forever. It's being a part of God's kingdom versus the kingdom of this world. And we get to take possession of that as we come to God poor in spirit. Isn't this amazing? Isn't it amazing the trade-off here? The tendency is to come to God with what I have. Okay, I got enough, I got enough. And and expect God to, to, to give me some because I've brought enough. 
And God says, no, 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 I got something much better. Acknowledge you have nothing. And I won't just give you some, I'll give you everything, the kingdom of heaven. You know, in that culture, the opposite was true. The Pharisees were seen as those who were rich in spirit, that they had enough spiritually. And uh, the, the problem here is not that they did. I mean, the truth of being, let me, let me say this. Um, whether or not you and I acknowledge it, poverty of spirit is our condition because of sin. Uh, the Bible says that in Ephesians 2, it contrasts God and humanity. It says that God is rich. He's rich in mercy. Uh, human beings, because of sin, are spiritually bankrupt. The issue here isn't whether or not they are whether or not a human ha- is actually poor in spirit, the question, the, the idea here of this person is that they acknowledge it. Uh, and the contrast with that is, is, is of course, the Pharisees. Um, it's, it's a posture. It's a posture that says, God, I know in and of myself I don't have enough. But this is what the gospel says. Uh, the gospel says that we come to God that way, and that's really the place that he meets us and saves us. Um. There's this interesting parallel and, and, and story that Jesus tells between a, a Pharisee and a tax collector. One shows up and they're there to pray and at the temple and the, the tax collector is praying and he's, he's praying prayers um, in, in order to justify himself before God and make himself and, 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 and project himself as right with God before God and himself. And he prays, Lord, thank you. He starts to thank God for who he's not. Thank you that I'm not like this tax collector here next to me, these sinner people. That I, don't, I don't do those things that tax collectors do. And God, he starts to thank God for all the good things he does. God, thank you that I fast multiple times a week and, and I give all that I have. Thank you. So his, his basis, his spirituality was based on what he did and what he didn't do. That's how he saw himself. That's not being poor in spirit. Seeing yourself based upon what you do and what you don't do and, and justifying yourself in that way. See, his condition was no different than the tax collector who was next to him who said this. Here's the tax collector's prayer. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I'm poor in spirit. I don't have enough. I, oh, I, I'm in, I am desperate need of your mercy. It's been said, well said, it was John Owens who said that the only thing that we need for salvation is need. The only thing that you need for God to fill your life with his love, his goodness, and your blessing is to acknowledge that you need it and you don't have it on your own. And this is where the gospel comes into play. Uh, 2 Corinthians actually describes the work that Jesus did on the cross for us who are in, in sinful poverty, the poverty of sin. 2 Corinthians 8 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. This is the good news of the gospel, that Jesus, who had everything, the houses, uh, the, the cattle on a thousand hills, it's, as Psalm says, he left that place of richness, came into a world, lived a life of poverty. Ultimately, he, though he was rich, he took upon himself our spiritual poverty, that we who were poor in spirit could be rich in him and become heirs of the kingdom. That's the first blessing. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The second one is blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed, this is interesting because the word blessed there literally means happy. Isn't this funny? Happy are those who mourn, 
for they shall be comforted. Um, the idea of mourning, this is not just emotional. This is not just physical. There, certainly, um, grief does manifest itself in tears and a certain posture. But mourning has more to do with a, a, a position and a posture uh, of the heart. Um, mourning does involve crying. It should. Weeping. We know Jesus displays that in John 13 as Jesus wept over the death of Lazarus. But the idea of mourning is just that, when we describe Jesus. The word here, mourn, what Jesus is talking about here, when we talk about mourning, Jesus is talking about the healthy response to the effects of sin in this world. That's what he's talking about here. Uh, this is, mourning is the healthy response to the effects of sin in this world. This, this isn't something that went over the, the heads of those that were listening. They, were, they weren't like mourning. Jesus is, is speaking to the lower class of the society that has spent plenty of time mourning. They know what it's like to experience the effects of sin in this world. Oppression, um, w- whatever it was, loss of life. But this is the healthy response. You know, the healthy response to sin in this world is mourning. Jesus models that for us. We know the Bible says that Jesus was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. That Jesus knew that when there are the effects of sin before us, um, we don't have to be indifferent. Okay, that's, that tends to, I think that's one way that we tend to approach things. Is we, We'd rather not face the pain of it. We'd rather just kind of ignore it, take the easy way out and be indifferent. Um, but, but Jesus knew how to not just um, navigate around the effects of sin in this world with like a quick answer. Like, come on, if anybody knew the hope of Jesus, uh, the hope of the, this world that God was going to give, it's, it's Jesus. But even Jesus, when Lazarus dies, he weeps, he mourns. You know, the scripture tells us as Christians, Romans 12, that we, a mature believer knows how to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. This is a healthy response to the effects of sin. This is a mature response. Um, There's a great example of this right now, obviously, in our culture with the horrific execution of George Floyd, visible for everybody to see. Through a day and age of of social media, this has spread like wildfire. And... um, when you and I see something like that, which is the effects of sin in a fallen world, we should mourn. Whatever that looks like for you, no matter what it is, and I know there's so much, there's so much being said right now. And everybody's got another new insight to share, and some of it has been so helpful. But before, listen, whatever it is we're going to say, we could spend here all day long posting, reposting. Here's the question I would ask you. If social media didn't exist, okay, for you to be able to put your, your input out there, when you see something like that, let me ask you, do you respond to it in a healthy way? Is there a part of you that's mature enough to mourn and grieve and actually feel the effects of sin? Or do you just kind of move past it because you've seen it happen hundreds of times before? You see, we're not those that mourn. We're not those that are indifferent as followers of Jesus. We must mourn. We must grieve what, 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 what listen, what grieves the heart of God. But here's the hope. 
we're not those that mourn uh, in despair. We don't mourn to a point of being devastated and distraught with no hope. Notice this. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You see the promise there? Comfort. That Greek word there for comfort uh, parakletos, which is where you get the same word for the Holy Spirit, he, he would be another comforter, is someone who comes alongside to bring encouragement and help, a comforter. Uh, I pray you have community uh, in your life and, and friends and relationships that are deep enough to not just provide humor but comfort. You go through the, we all go through those hard times and it's someone that comes alongside to lift us up and encourage us. And, and this is what Jesus said is a blessing for those who mourn. The blessed ones who mourn, God comes alongside and he comforts them. It's 2 Corinthians, wrong reference. 2 Corinthians 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Uh, it says this, who comforts us in our tribulation that we may be able to comfort those who are, in, who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. God is the God of all comfort. Blessed are those who mourn. Whatever, listen, whatever the effects of sin have brought about in your life, sometimes it's the effects of sin in our, in, in our lives. And the Bible talks about godly sorrow, mourning over our own sin, the, pro, the healthy response to our own sin. Or maybe it's mourning the effects of sin around us, the loss of life, or, or, or racism, or, or whatever the thing may be that we see around us as, as evidence of a fallen world. The, the healthy way to respond is mourning, but the promise and the blessing for those who mourn is God's comfort. He's the God of all comfort. He comforts us in our tribulation. He comes alongside. He encourages us. I love the way that, that it's written in Psalm 119. This is my comfort and my affliction. Your word has given me life. God uses his word to speak into our pain, to, to not always bring explanations, but he brings revelations to our situation about who he is and what he's promised. Notice this, so that we might be able to comfort others. I think that's the most important part here. Um, Greg Laurie says it this way. I love how he said it. He says that God doesn't comfort us so that we can be comfortable. God comforts us so that we can be comforters. God doesn't comfort us so that we can be comfortable, like, okay, good, I feel good now. But we come to God in our grief. God meets us with his comfort so that we can bring that comfort to those around us. Uh, the next beatitude here says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Um, another counterculture cultural blessing. The meek are those who, um, who you've probably heard it described, right? Like meekness is power under control. It's power under control. Meekness is me when I play Judah one-on-one in basketball. Okay? Meekness is not when I dunk on him, which I have done several times, okay? Meekness is, is though I have strength, I don't assert my power to take advantage of you, but I'm, it's, it's a humility to, to have that power under control. That's the maturity that is the self-control around the power. Um, Jesus is the greatest display of this when he's hanging on a cross and he's being taunted and tested. And, 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 he, and, and with this question, if you're really the son of God, why don't you take yourself off the cross? 
Now, could Jesus have, have taken himself off that cross and at any second? Um, it's been said it wasn't, it wasn't the nails that kept Jesus on the cross. It was his love. And you could also say it was his meekness. Jesus said, I am gentle and lowly in heart. And Jesus says, those who are meek, notice this phrase, shall inherit the earth. What a countercultural, what a counterintuitive idea. Because throughout history, the ones that have inherited the earth are often the strong. Like if I have a kingdom and I want it to expand throughout the whole world and I want to inherit the earth, well, it's survival of the strongest. It's survival of the fittest. But here's this promise that Jesus is actually getting from Psalm 37. Notice what he says. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. This is David. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only causes harm. Notice this next idea. Nevertheless, oops, wrong verse. Do not fret. It only causes harm. Now I've lost my place. Hold on. Mm, Found it. But, okay, I found it. I'm so happy. Okay, here's what it says. It says, for yet a little while and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more. And here's this promise. But the meek, right from the Psalms, shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. This is David that Jesus is quoting from. David was a man who was overcome often by evil. Evil was constantly pushing David, it seemed like, away from his proper place. And how many times and opportunities did David have? Think about the instance where David is, is, sneaks up behind Saul in a cave. And he has the power. David's promised the throne. Saul is on the throne and Saul is before him. Saul's mission in life is to kill David. Saul has sent entire armies to find and hunt David. And there's David in the cave with a dagger. And Saul's before him. And David responds in meekness. He doesn't kill his enemy that's before him. Uh, Because here's the idea Jesus is getting at. What meekness understands is who God is and who we're not. Meekness says, vengeance is not mine, vengeance is the Lord's. And and there's such a tendency, I think, to try to be God when we're harmed. To try to retaliate, to use my power to get them back, to try to overcome evil with evil. There's such a, I think, a conversation about that right now in our culture. When when we come face to face with that kind of evil, how do you overcome that? And there's this feeling like, are the strong going to win? Are those in power that are, are abusing it, are they going to win? But David says what Jesus reiterates, the meek shall inherit the earth. Because God is the one. Like, look at Israel. Israel's a great example of this. Such a wimpy, puny nation that God brings to victory. You read in the book of Revelation, you see the meek inheriting the earth. Those that were persecuted, those that were martyred, they're the ones whose is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Let's look at this next beatitude. Blessed are those, Jesus says, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. And these are each kind of building on each other, if you see this idea here. First, we're poor in spirit, okay? Then we're mourning sin our own sin and the sin around us. Uh, And then we're thinking about meekness and how we're treating our neighbor. And and we're thinking about how often the meek are taken advantage of. Uh, And now we're thinking about, Jesus has us thinking about those that are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. He says, for they shall be filled. And the idea there of hungering and thirsting is that, you know, you hunger for something you go without, right? Like if you eat Laspadas, you're not going to be hungry after for a sub. But 
like me, after this sermon, I'm going to hunger and thirst for Las Patas, okay? Because I'm, I'm going without it right now. Pray for me. All right, it's a sub place. Anyway, all right? You're hungry for that which you go without. So Jesus is not just saying, desire righteousness here. That's not what he's saying. He's, in fact, I don't, could this be applied to personal righteousness? This is often what this, this verse is used for. Hungering to be a righteous person. And there, there's truth to that. But the cultural context here was Jesus speaking to people who for a large part of their life have been going without justice. And they're, they're, they've been the victims of injustice. Um, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. You hunger for that which you go without. And Jesus says, blessed are those. This is a promise he's making. If in your life you see injustice, if in your life you experience injustice and you're hungering for righteousness, you're not executing justice on your own, here's what the Bible promises. Justice will be served. It will. We, we studied it last week at the return of Christ where God is going to righteously reward every person. Justice will be served. You will be filled. If you're hungering for things to be right, the word there, filled, means like you, get, you eat your share, like a good meal. And you're like, I'm, I could keep eating. I've done that. Like, watch this. I could keep going. But you're, you're filled. You've eaten your share. You're satisfied. I just want you to know that that's the promise that you and I have is those who are looking to God, when we look around us in this world, when we, when we walk through what we're all walking through, when we face such tragic injustice, we watch someone's life just slowly taken away from them and it's the center point of our culture right now, we hunger and thirst for righteousness. But here's the promise. God is the righteous judge. We aren't. He's gonna take care of that. We can trust him for that. That doesn't mean that we don't labor, we don't lift up our voice for those that don't have one, no. But this does mean that we can hope in God's ability to serve justice perfectly. Um, it's Second Peter that says, we look according to the, nevertheless, according to his promise, we look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. It's certainly not Minneapolis, it's certainly not the US, but it's uh, a hopeful future that we have. Um, look at this next one. We'll move along here as we, as we almost get to the end. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. The blessed ones. Who's this next blessed one? Well, Jesus says the merciful. The merciful. Those who have within themselves this ability or opportunity to execute judgment, but they withhold. It's, 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 it's what makes meekness possible. It's mercy. All right? We know that grace is getting what we don't deserve, okay? Mercy is not getting what we do deserve or not executing what we could give. A good illustration of this is like mercy is when you get pulled over and the cop gives you a warning, okay? You broke the law, you deserve a ticket, you get a warning, okay? Grace is different. Grace is when the cop pulls you over and says, okay, I'm gonna give you a ticket to a concert of your choice, okay? Wherever you wanna go, all right? Like that's, that's getting what you, it's the favor of God. Mercy, blessed are the merciful the merciful, those who are who acquit others. He says, for they shall obtain mercy. When you extend mercy, you receive mercy. You become an heir of mercy. And I think that Jesus, he does this, he says this idea a lot. It almost seems like theological karma. You know, he, James talks about the same idea that mercy triumphs over judgment. With whatever measure you lend, you'll also receive. Um, but I believe Jesus is describing a principle that's a cycle 
it's true. At the end of the day, what Jesus is saying here, the merciful, you cannot be a genuinely merciful person if you are not genuinely thankful for the mercy that God has given you. Okay? It's the fuel to show mercy. In fact, if you're having a hard time right now loving and forgiving and, and extending mercy towards someone, the best thing that you can do is see the debt that God has released from you, is to come back there. Oftentimes, we become God and we become our own judges because we, we, we get away from remembering and keeping ourselves in the love of God. We get away from remembering how loving God has been to us. But blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And you could almost say, for they have obtained mercy, and they're showing it to others. As he goes on, he says this. Uh, he says, the next one is, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart. This is also counter, kind of provocative. And um, in that culture, again, the Pharisees were seen as the pure ones, but it wasn't based on their heart. It was based on their behavior. Uh, we, we know that what God is genuinely interested in is not the deeds of our hands, but the motives of our hearts. He cares about who we really are when no one's watching. And his goal for our lives is not just external purity, but external impurity, sinful actions flow out of sinful, uh, sin, a sinful heart. Jesus said that's where everything proceeds from. Guard your heart, the Proverbs say, for from, from, from it flow the issues of life. Now, a good question to ask here first and foremost is who has a pure heart? All right, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Well, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. Anyone? And we know that we already saw we're poor in spirit. Now, this is, 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 is kind of a twofold application here for those who are in Christ. We know that Jesus makes me pure, first and foremost. Okay? I don't clean my heart up so that he'll accept me. I bring it before him, and he does the cleansing work. He makes me clean. Okay? Uh, Jesus said to his disciples, you are already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. He cleanses us through his blood. He makes us pure, washes us pure. But now as we walk with Jesus, there is this, this is an interesting idea. There's this idea that the, the, there's a connection here, okay, that Jesus makes that we can't separate. It's a connection between, an inseparable connection between purity of heart and clarity of sight. Purity of heart and clarity of sight. He says, if you have a pure heart, you will have clarity of sight in seeing God. Isn't that interesting? Uh, Hebrews actually uses the same idea. Hebrews reiterates this, and um, again, I've botched it in my slides, and you're not going to be able, oh, I found it, okay, all right, uh, Hebrews 12, 14 says, pursue peace with all people and holiness, notice this, without which no one will see the Lord. You know, a lot of times in our lives, we, we, we draw these conclusions about God like he's hiding from us. Could it be it's not that God's hiding, it's just that your vision has become blurry? Jesus says if you're pure in heart, your purity of heart will allow you to see God. Sin will really affect our vision of God. It's amazing how hard it, it is for me to see things clearly when I'm wrapped up in me, when I'm caught up in sin. Sinful patterns, sinful ways of thinking. I remember when I really like had a moment of surrender in my life of, of, of really the Lord asking me for years to give up certain things that I was holding on to as my saviors. And once I laid them at his feet, it's amazing how I saw him 
more in my life. I saw him more in my day. There's a holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And this is a great thing for us to pray. God, if, if you promise to reveal yourself, if you promise for you to be seen by the pure in heart, here's a great thing to pray. Lord, is there any sin in my life that's keeping me from seeing you clearly? This is huge. It'll affect your decisions. It'll affect how you see what... Lord, is there any... Here's what David, Psalm 139, pray Psalm 139. Lord, search me. Test me if there's any wicked way in me. Reveal to me the, 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 the blind spots of sin in my heart that are causing me to see you in an unclear way. But make things clear. That's a, a, a beatitude. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Two more left. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called, notice this one, sons of God. So who's blessed? Who are the blessed ones? The peacemakers. And what's their blessing? They shall be called sons of God. I love that. So a peacemaker is, is someone who makes peace, okay? You don't need the Greek word for that one, okay? Um, a peacemaker is someone who, where, where there's division, they don't bring further division, but they seek in every way to bridge gaps, to bring peace. Now, why is someone who does this, a peacemaker, called the son of God? Well, because this is what God is like, right? Sons resemble their fathers, for better or for worse, okay? And in this case, if you're a peacemaker, you look a lot like God. You're, 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 hey, you're, aren't you God's son? You're just like him, right? That's the idea. Like, you look just like him. You're God's son. You're a son of God. Why? Because God is that same way. Colossians 1.19 says, For it pleased the Father, the Father, for in him all the fullness should dwell in Jesus. And what has God done through Jesus? By him to reconcile all things to himself through Jesus, and by him, whether things on earth and things on heaven, what did God do? He was a peacemaker. Through Jesus, God, it says, made peace through the blood of Jesus' cross. So God is. God has made peace through humanity and himself, and God has brought peace through humanity and each other. No longer, Ephesians describes the middle walls of separation, things like race and background and ethnicity and socioeconomic uh, classes and personality differences. God has made peace through any particular thing that sin, that sin would use to divide us. And he's made peace with us and himself. And so here's how we can look a lot like him, bring peace. Ask yourself that question. Are, are you a son of God in that way? Do you look like God in that way? What part of your, 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 your relationships, the way that you navigate peace, how is that in your life? How are you resembling God? Are you seeking first to make peace horizontally, yourself and others? Are you driving the gap further? Or are you always seeking to pursue peace? What about between your friends? Are you someone in your friend groups, in your relationships, do you look like God when they bring the issues to you? Or do you try to take a side and try to divide? Do you make peace like God? What about evangelistically? You know, that's what an evangelist is. That's what we're called to do. Our, our mission in life is to be peacemakers between God and people. Because Jesus has made the way. We, we're not the ones that do it. We don't make the peace for them, right? Jesus has done that. But we try to bring them and invite them. Uh, the Bible says that God has committed to us this ministry of reconciliation of bringing peace to God. Blessed are the peacemakers. They're just like God, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed, hold on. Bl 
Here it is, last one. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus, this is such a significant one to him that he goes on with a few more thoughts. This is the only beatitude that includes three verses. Every other one gets one verse. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. For for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So this last group of people that he considers blessed, the blessed ones, are those who are persecuted. The the word persecuted can also be translated pressed on or pursued. And it's a negative force. Um, And it's resistance is the idea. Sometimes it's physical. Sometimes it's, it's fatal. Sometimes it's verbal. He talks about being reviled even, okay? But notice the idea here. It's, uh, and Paul talks about this, or sorry, Peter, in 1 Peter, he talks about being persecuted for doing the wrong thing. He's like, that's not noble, you know? Anybody, it's normal if you do the wrong thing to be pressed on, to, be, to, to, be, to have someone come against you. The persecution here, he says, it's for righteousness' sake. Uh, it's doing the right thing and then suffering for it which 2 Timothy 3 says is a promise for those who are in Jesus. 2 Timothy 3 says this. Oh, wrong verse. Sorry. 2 Timothy 3. I don't have it again. This is great. All right. Uh, When you read it, 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all those who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. There is going to be resistance. But Jesus says, blessed are you because though you have resistance on earth, you have a reward in heaven. That's the blessing. We talked last week about living for that reward. Moses, who didn't settle for the things of this world, but lived for an eternal reward. Blessed are those who experience resistance. Now, this is the key thing, for righteousness' sake. All right, this doesn't mean go out and try to find people to resist you, be kind of an annoying jerk, you know? I gotta get, everyone's persecuting me. It's like, yeah, it's not because you're being righteous, okay? It's other reasons. It's for Jesus' sake. But when we experience resistance, Jesus says, don't be surprised. It's a part of the journey. There's a blessing in it. However that resistance comes, his disciples would experience it to the point of losing their lives. Blessed are you, because though you have resistance on earth, you have a reward in heaven. And when your eyes are not set on the resistance you're experiencing, but your reward in heaven, you will have the strength to persevere to persevere through the resistance you're facing. So who's blessed? Who are the blessed ones? Well, according to Jesus, it's not who you'd expect. It's not those who help themselves, but God helps those who cannot help himself. He brings blessing to the undeserving and the unexpected, even you and I. We do not deserve one ounce in and of ourselves of God's love and God's righteousness. He didn't choose us because we earned it, because we impressed him. He chose us. He saved us. He's blessed us because he's a God of love. And he loves you and I. And so, man, may we, may we remember who Jesus sees as blessed. May we remember in times like we're in right now, when we are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, may we, may we remember that there's a time coming where justice will be served. May we, in the meantime, may we learn to mourn sin, respond appropriately, maturely, and in a healthy way. I think as we are centered on the teachings here of Jesus, as we, are, as we begin to really believe these things, what God says about blessing, 
we're able to be the light that God has called us to be in this dark world. That's what we're going to talk about next week, being a light in this world. Um, But ultimately, we end here with this incredible hope that God is a good blesser, despite what we've deserved. Let's praise Him for that. Thanks again for tuning in. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. If you'd like to visit us in person, we gather at Don Estridge High Tech Middle School in Boca Raton, Florida, every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. For more sermon content and information, you can check out solaschurch.com.